This is the world around us. Hey everyone, hope you all are doing great today. And by great, I mean as well as possible considering the crisis our world is facing right now. For anyone who's new, hi, I'm Shreya, and in the world around us, we take an in-depth look at the scientific wonders of our environment. Today's topic is one of the tiniest things in existence. It's a part of everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Want to take a guess at what it is? Yeah? Not today? No? Okay, well, it is the electron. An electron is a subatomic particle with a negative charge. To understand the electron, we must first have a general idea of the structure of an atom and the electron's role in it. And so, let's jump straight into that. Atoms are extremely small particles that make up anything and everything in the known universe. They were discovered by a man named John Dalton. His atomic theory did explain many things about matter and chemical reactions, but it was not entirely accurate. Dalton believed that the atom was the smallest particle there was, that it could not be subdivided any further. However, other scientists debunked his theory, proving the existence of protons, electrons, neutrons, and even smaller particles. After they were discovered, however, it took a while for the scientists to figure out the correct configuration or structure of the atom and how those smaller particles were arranged within it. Now, protons and neutrons account for the majority of an atom's mass and are located in the nucleus of an atom, which is the center. Protons possess a positive charge and determine what element the atom is, while neutrons hold no charge. These two also can be divided into even smaller particles. Electrons are much tinier compared to protons, nearly nearly 1,800 times less massive. They are located in the atomic cloud and can be found in orbit-like paths revolving around the nucleus. These orbits do not guarantee the location of an electron and only show their general location. Before we move on, Let's discuss how these subatomic particles interact with each other. Neutrons have no charge and are not attracted or repelled by either of the other charges. For protons and electrons, opposites attract while likes repel. Two electrons will not attract whilst an electron and a proton will. The negative and positive charges of these particles also cancel each other out. If there was an uneven number of protons or electrons, electrons, the charge would sway towards whichever had the higher number. For example, if uh, an element had seven protons and eight electrons, the charge would be negative because if we can subtract the protons from the electrons, that would leave us with one extra electron. Understand? Yeah. Now that we understand how an atom is structured, let's ask ourselves, what is the point of these tiny particles? What exactly do they do? Why do they matter? Well, as we discussed earlier, protons determine the element of an atom. They also contribute to its overall mass and overall charge. Neutrons have no charge and only contribute to the mass of an atom. Electrons, as we know, have very little mass, but do help determine the charge and the chemical bonds and properties of an atom. Everything seems straightforward, except why do electrons determine the atom's chemical properties? The answer comes in two words, valence electrons. Valence electrons are the number of electrons in the outermost shell or orbit in a Bohr diagram. 
The electrons of an atom can be placed in this diagram that is divided into different levels to determine their valence number. The first level holds two electrons, the second, eight, the third, eight, and so on. For example, say we had to organize the subatomic particles of an atom of fluorine. Because it has nine protons, if we are discussing a neutral atom, it also possesses nine electrons. Fluorine would occupy the first level completely before filling the second level with seven valence electrons. This determines its valence electron number and the column or family that it's organized into on the periodic table. All elements with similar valences also have similar chemical bonds. The family that fluorine belongs to is known as the halogen family. A tendency of elements is to want to reach the perfect eight number of valence electrons. They will try to lose or gain electrons to achieve this. But how do atoms lose or gain electrons? Let's find out. We have a special surprise set in store for you guys after this segment. But for now, let's discuss electron transfers. As electrons are on the edge of an atom, it's easier for them to be transferred than for protons or neutrons. Think about when you get static shock. Within that shock is electrons being transferred from one surface of contact to you. That's an example of conduction, transfer via touch. Induction is a method of transfer through polarization and when two objects draw near each other and, but don't actually make contact. Friction, the final method, is similar to conduction, only the two surfaces touching are acting upon one another and creating heat. So, what's the big deal? Electrons can be transferred. That must mean they're constantly moving, right? Bopping from one atom to another? Well, I hate to break it to you, dear viewer, but it is in fact much more complex. Certain elements are more susceptible to gaining an electron, while others aren't. For example, it is hard to lose electrons for fluorine while it's easy for an element like francium. This is due to a property called ionization energy. When we talked about valence electrons, we mentioned the magic eight. The closer an element is to the magic eight, the greater ionization energy it needs to lose an electron. This rule excludes the noble gases as they have already reached the eight. The halogens, who have seven valence electrons, have the greatest ionization energy, with fluorine having the most of all. However, Francium only has one valence electron. It can reach the magic aid by losing that one, thereby reverting back to a full valence level. Therefore, it has low ionization energy and loses electrons easily. The higher up a family and the more towards the noble gases an element is, the higher its ionization energy. But what about the opposite end of the spectrum? What about gaining electron electrons? That my friends, is known as electron affinity. It increases the same as ionization in the upright direction. This can be a little confusing to understand as some might assume gaining electrons would reverse the pattern. However, elements want to reach the perfect eight valence number. This goal is true with affinity and ionization. Here, francium also has low electron affinity as gaining electrons would not be the shortest path for it to reach the perfect eight. Fluorine, on the other hand, only needs this one addition to reach it. It has a high affinity as its valence number is 7 and only needs one extra to reach the perfect 8. 
Now that we understand how an atom gains or loses an electron, what do we call these elements after the processes of ionization and affinity are applied? The elements on the periodic table are all neutral, so gaining or losing an electron would make them positively or negatively charged. When this occurs, they become ions. There are two types of ions, anions and cations. Anions are negatively charged, while cations are positive. You can differentiate them by the fact that there is an N in anion, which stands for negative. Ions tend to have differing chemical properties from their original elements as their valence electron number is different. But what is it like for the electron, the one that gets transferred between all these elements? Well, dear listeners, our surprise is ready to be unveiled. To give us another point of view on electron transfers, we have a special guest joining us. Stay tuned. Let's get an inside scoop on what it's like to be an electron. Despite the many brilliant thinkers that contributed to physics and chemistry, they were all providing an outside perspective. What better way to understand an electron than by speaking to one? Please welcome E the Electron. Glad to be here, dude. I haven't talked to anyone in a freaking long time. Happy to be of service. Now, I'm sure our listeners are wondering, E, is that short for something? A nickname, perhaps? Yep. Short for electronic subatomic particle five septillion hundred twenty three billion four hundred fifty six million two thousand nine nine. Uh, I think we'll stick with E. Anyways, thanks again for joining us. Where are you, and what are you up to right now? Well, right now I'm buzzing around in some good old H two O. I'm part of a hydrogen atom right now, but ten minutes ago I was in oxygen. I've actually been part of for part of water for quite a while right now. Interesting. So you were transferred. What method, and how often does it occur? It was, uh, what do you humanoids call it? Construction? No, conduction. Our atoms are always bumping into each other, so we get transferred pretty often. You know, it's pretty much the norm for us electrodes. The protons and neutrons have it easy. It'd take a whole nother nuke explosion to move one of them. They're real stubborn. (laughs) Real stubborn. Sounds like you're not the friendliest with protons and neutrons. Care to elaborate? Man, I'm usually pretty chill with everybody, moving around all the time and all that. But those protons are so stuck up, thinking they're better than us because they stay put in that nucleus and made, make up most of the mass. And those neutrons are freaking brainless. They just follow around without questioning. Now, some of them are decent, but most of them are just followers. Now, let me tell you, though, there's no saving those protons. No way. Every single one of them is a bad apple. And what did they think of you? That we're a bunch of no-good hippies that can't ever stick around. Although, it's not like exactly in our control moving around so much, I mean. Speaking of which, how often do you transfer between atoms and different elements? Is there any sort of pattern? Uh, It depends. Certain elements let go of electrons easier than others. So usually it stays consistent if I'm bopping around elements that have a high affinity. Is that right? Yeah, affinity and ionization. But say I beat the odds and get transferred to an element that are that's on the lower end of these. It's a lot harder to get out, and I get and and I end up stuck for days. Now, E, what is it you prefer? The long spells within one single atom, or the constant transferring? Which lifestyle suits you? 
Well, I am an electron at heart. When I was a youngin', running to new places and being part of new things was what I lived for. I loved the fast-paced and adventure feel to it. After a while, though, I realized my life was nothing special. I might have enjoyed it for a while, but it was one that nearly every electron lived in. My life was lonely. I realized after a while I wanted to settle down. Maybe find something new to do with my life? I don't know. I wanted to have a purpose. Because of that, I was depressed for, say, three million years, give or take. But I had to accept that it was something I couldn't change. I realized I was serving a greater purpose by filling in Adam's valances, by deciding its chemical properties. It's kind of like you humans with your religion. I believed I was contributing to a greater cause. Help me come to terms with my lifestyle. That's an amazing journey of self-discovery, it seems. Sometimes it's best to go with the flow of things when it's out of your hands. How As much as I'd love to pry deeper into your accepting your role, you said you were in a bad place for three million years? How, how old are you? Oh, that. It's no big deal. Um, well, wow. I actually don't know. I've always just existed. The beginning of the universe, probably. Though I can't say my memory remembers more than the past couple million years. It really gets hazy after that. Though I will say I came to Earth around 65 million years ago, give her, uh, around that time. That's amazing. With what, with what method did you come to Earth? Where you slowly transferred between atoms in space until you finally entered our atmosphere? I was a part of an asteroid belt and transferred to the meteor that crashed into the Earth and killed off the dinosaurs. That's amazing. If only modern scientists were able to have seen what you have. What was the extinction of the dinosaurs like? I don't know, man. That was a long time ago. But the world back then was totally different from now. The meteor triggered a bunch of natural disasters that over time killed off the dinosaurs. There were a lot of toxic gases back then. I was mostly a part of the atmosphere above the Earth at that point, so I know. Interesting. That's an awfully long time to exist, isn't it? Maybe for you humans, but it's the norm for us electrons. We're practically immortal. But we've been that si- we've been that way since we were born. How were you born? How are so- how are electrons born in general? Well, we weren't so much as born as we were. What's the word? Made. Back when the universe was born, the conditions were just right for the building blocks of matter to form. It was us electrons or whatever makes up them protons and neutrons at first. It took a couple hundred it took a couple hundred thousands of years, but we eventually managed to form atoms from atoms, molecules, and so on. Wow. Does it ever get tiring knowing it's never going to end that you'll always exist? Nah, not really. At some point in life, every electron kind of just accepts that what what they have, and they take comfort in knowing that whatever that they will know, they'll be there along the ride and know whatever will happen in the universe. They'll be around to see it. And even after the universe dies, we'll still exist. None of us have reached the maximum um, of our existence yet. But people have guessed that we can live 60,000 yada years, almost five quintillion times the expected lifespan of the universe. I can't say the same for you humans, though. Well, we were never meant to live forever. 
if that were the case, we wouldn't have been able to reproduce. And that certainly would have led to overpopulation, an issue we're already facing in 2020. On the subject of humans, however, have you ever been a part of one? Like the skin or the organs? Of course, being human, human beings and other living things are made of extremely complex molecules that possess multiple atoms of many different elements. I've been a part of phosphorus atom and skin, oxygen, hydrogen, sulfur, nitrogen. I've been iron in the bloodstream. I've been a part of virtually everything within living things. Despite that, there are millions, trillions of substances I could still discover in my lifetime. Keeps life exciting, you know? I can't say I do, but that's really fascinating and a little gross to think about. Why is it gross? Well, I'm talking to you, aren't I? You said you were in a water molecule right now. For all I know, you could be talking about the water from someone's body. I guess I can see why humans might find that creepy, having such short lives and all. The average human lifespan is 79 years. What do you think of that? Wow, that's so short. I experience time the same way you guys, but it feels short to me. Don't know how to explain it exactly. With how long you've been alive, you don't really have to. Unfortunately, however, our time limit is winding to a close. We do have one last question, though. Where to next? What element do you predict will be your next destination? That's a good question. It'll most likely be an oxygen molecule. I am not in the body of another living thing right now, don't worry. I'm in the ocean. But I could get conducted into anything else that passes by. Say, plankton, for instance. Or a fish. That's a thing. You never know as an electron, you guys. They are always the most probable choices, but honestly, anything could happen. I could go anywhere. I could go to the freaking moon. Or I could be stuck here in this very atom for longer than the human lifespan. Life is full of surprises. I guess that's true of your existence, too. Well, this was certainly a memorable interview. Thanks for joining us, E. Your perspective was very much needed and appreciated. No problem. I just felt grateful for the offer. We electrons are pretty small, and being a part of water for so long, and an atom with so few of us, haven't spoken to anyone in a while. Thanks for the opportunity, dudes. Of course. Now that we have a basic understanding of the electron and its properties, let's focus a bit more on its discovery. The electron was discovered by British physicist J.J. Thompson in 1897. He used an invention called the cathode ray to prove the existence of negatively charged particles that were smaller than atoms, refuting the theory that the latter were the smallest things the, that anything in the universe could be broken down into. Now, let's learn a bit more about cathode rays in particular. Cathode rays are a stream of electrons present in a tube in which all the air has been siphoned away, creating a vacuum. Two pieces of metal are placed inside the cathode ray tube, and it is connected to a power source. The electricity enters the tube through the cathode, the positively charged end, and flows through the anode, the negatively charged end. You should be hearing some familiar terms right about now. Cathode, cation, both are positively charged anode, anion, negatively charged. Anyway, a ray from one metal shoots across the tube and creates a glowing spot when it hits the screen of glass. J.J. Thompson discovered the electron using this device. Initially, in Thompson's experiments, he aimed to find out what the cathode ray was made of. 
He took two metal plates and placed them on either side of the cathode ray tube before turning on the electricity. When he did that, the two plates became charged. The top one was positively charged, while the bottom was negatively charged. And the cathode ray, like the actual ray, tilted upwards. This meant that it had reacted to the metal and had something electrified in it. He mo- Just to make sure, he modified his test with independent variables to make the experiment more fair and still got the same outcome. This confirmed that whatever makes up the cathode ray is negatively charged. Based on his findings with the cathode ray coupled with other research, Thompson drew the conclusion that the particles that make up the cathode ray are 1,800 times smaller than the smallest atom, which is hydrogen. As he discovered particles smaller than atoms, the existence of some atomic particles was proved, as everything was already made of atoms, so if there was something smaller than atoms, then, then atoms had to be made of them. Further on, Thompson realized that there had to be a positive charge within atoms as well, because because all atoms were neutral, at least on the periodic table, despite having electrons, negatively charged particles inside them. This set the stage for the discovery of the proton later on. Now that we have an understanding of how the electron was discovered, what better way to learn more than to have a chat with the person who did the discovering? That's right, we'll be interviewing Mr. J.J. Thompson. Now, Mr. Thompson can't give us a live interview, so I will be reading his answers while one of our team members reads for the anchor. Before we begin, let's learn a bit about him. J.J. Thompson was a British physicist who, as you know, discovered the electron using the cathode ray. He was was commended for his findings in 1906 with a Nobel Peace Prize. Now, let's take a blast to the past and speak with the man who discovered the electron. Mr. J.J. Thompson, so glad to have you here with us. What made you decide to accept our offer for this interview? I wish to give an account of some investigations which have led to the conclusion that the carriers of negative electricity are bodies, which I have called corpuscles, having a mass very much smaller than that of the atom of any known element. There's no need for that now, Mr. Thompson. Many tests have been conducted proving the existence of electrons and their smaller mass, However, I'm curious to know how you proved the existence of subatomic particles in your time. Could anything at first sight seem more impractical than a body which is so small that its mass is an insignificant fraction of the mass of an atom of hydrogen, which itself is so small that a crowd of these atoms, and equal to the number of the population of the whole world, would have been too small to have been detected by any means then known to science? I held trials in which corpuscles became aware to me, as well as the electron. With the discovery, a new era has begun in physics. That's very, very true. Now, we know you made this discovery with the use of cathode, with the cathode ray. Can you tell us how exactly you discovered the electrons with them? As the cathode ray carries a force, a charge of negative electricity are deflected, by an electrostatic force as if they were negatively electrified and are acted on by a magnetic force in just the way in which this force would act on negatively electrified body moving along the path of these rays. I see no escape from the conclusion that they are charges of negative electricity carried by particles of matter. 
Your discoveries are famous today, but we learned that the science community was divided prior to your experiment. Can you tell us more about that? Two views were prevalent. One, which was chiefly supported by English physicists, was that the rays are negatively electrified bodies shot off from the cathode with great velocity. The other view, which was held by the majority of German physicists, was that the rays were some kind of ethereal vibration or waves. Neither groups were correct. It seems general public during your time held the same belief that the British physicists did not did that the rays were negatively charged electrically. Why did they support that? The arguments in favor of the rays being negatively charged particles are primarily that they are deflected by a magnet in just the same way as moving negatively electrified particles. We know that such particles, when a magnet is placed near them, are acted on by a force whose direction is at right angles to the magnetic force and also at right angles to the direction in which the particles are moving. We've charged particles better known as anions. In this day and age, from our research, we've concluded that positively charged particles, cations, do exist. However, the question arose, can an atom have no electrons at all? An unelectrified atom is so elusive that unless more than a million are present, we have no means sufficiently sensitive to detect them. Or to put it another way, unless we had a better test for a man than for an unelectrified molecule, we should be unable to find out that the Earth was uninhabited. A billion unelectrified atoms may escape our observation, whereas a dozen or so electrified ones are detected without difficulty. Before you, the idea of electrons ceased to exist. What led you to even begin thinking about your theory? From the point of view of the physicist, a theory of matter is a policy rather than a creed. Its object is to connect or co-coordinate apparently diverse phenomena and above all to suggest, stimulate, and direct experiment. It ought to furnish a compass which, if followed, will lead the observer further and further into previously unexplored regions. That is a very poetic view on that matter. Just to clear, clarify, were you using the magnetic and electromagnetic energy in your experience? If so... Why didn't why did you need them? If the rays charged with negative electricity, they ought to be deflected by an electrified body as well as by a magnet. In the earlier experiments made on this point, no such deflection was observed. This reason the reason for this has been shown to be that the, when the cathode rays pass through gas, they make it a conductor of electricity. They need a vessel. Now that we've cleared up that up, now that we've cleared that up, let's shift the focus away from the science. With your discovery of the electron and all the modern findings in your physics after your passing, what's next? What is the ultimate goal? As we conquer peak after peak, we see in front of us regions full of interest and beauty, but we do not see our goal. We do not see the horizon. In the distance, tower still higher peaks, which will yield to those who ascend them still wider prospects and deepen the feeling, the truth of which is emphasized by every advance in science, that great are the works of the Lord.
What an elegant way to put that. You're quite, you're quite right. There is always more, no matter how much we discover. Whatever new things we discover, there is always more. Our time is running out, so we'll ask you one last thing. What met, what method would you suggest on properly educating our young generations on the electron and the field of physics and chemistry in general? The study of simple cases would, I think, often be of advantage even to students whose mathematical attainments are sufficient to enable them to follow the solution of the more general cases. For in these simple cases, the absence of analytical difficulties allows attention to be more easily concentrated on the physical aspects of the question and thus gives us gives the student a more vivid idea and a more manageable grasp of the subject than he would be likely to attain if he merely regarded electro electrical phenomena through a cloud of analytical symbols. What a powerful statement coming from one whose entire career is devoted to electrical phenomena through the cloud of analytical symbols. Thank you for speaking with us today. So let's review what we've learned. We know that an atom is made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. Electrons are negatively charged and located in the electron cloud. Protons are positively charged and are located in the nucleus along with neutrons. Electrons determine the chemical bonds and properties of an element. This is determined with valence electrons which are electrons located in the outermost level when placed in a Bohr diagram. Electrons with the same valence number have similar properties and reactivity and are located in the same family or column on the periodic table. Elements have a tendency to want to reach the perfect eight amount of valence electrons and gain or lose electrons depending on this. Electron affinity is the tendency to gain electrons, while ionization energy is the amount of energy it takes to lose an electron. Both increase periodically to the upper right side of the periodic table, with the exception of the noble gases family. When an element gains or loses an electron, they become ions. A positively charged ion is a cation, while a negatively charged ions are known as anions. The cathode ray is an invention that J.J. Thomson used to discover the electron. He conducted tests with different metals and saw that the ray reacted by tilting. With some other research he had collected over the years, Thomson was able to determine that these charged particles within the ray were smaller than atoms, proving the existence of what we now know was the electron. Electron is a fascinating thing, isn't it? It's one of the smallest things in the known universe, yet so incredibly important to physics and chemistry, and just part of the entire world around us. I hope you all learned a thing or two today. Catch you next week. Thank you to chemlibretext.org hyperphysics.edu, terpconnect.edu, 
plato.stanford.edu.azquotes.com, todayinside.com, and nobelprize.org for providing our information for this episode.